Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we just got back from the first Cars and Coffee of the year. 2019. 2019. Cars and Coffee. The weather was beautiful. There was a lot of cars there and it was a good opportunity to get the 911 out and, and, uh, and, you know, make some noises around people and <laughs> have all the, have everybody do like the, the like the burnout symbol I with their la- finger. Oh my God. I was laughing to myself when you were leaving. I was right behind you and the kids like, I can't believe all the people were just like, light them up, light them up. I'm and like, guys, like, there's literally a cop the next block down. There's a cop next block down. And plus I'm like, guys, I have like 500 pounds over my rear wheels. <laughs> it's not that it's easy. It's not a burnout machine. I've actually never tried to like hold my foot on the brake and try and do a burnout. Do a brake stand. But I don't think it would work. It's probably not great for your transmission that you just spent how many thousands of dollars on too. Yeah, probably probably not. I mean, I really do love, I'm loving this transmission. Oh, really? It's slowed my car down, right. but it has made it such a pleasure to drive. Oh, it's more of a cruiser now. It, well, it's still quick. It's still No, jumps. I know, but your your revs are lower, so you can enjoy it on the freeway a little bit Yeah, more. I can enjoy it. it. Just Yeah, it's quieter. I can listen yeah. to my radio because I'm an old man now, apparently. Which, when did you put a radio in this thing? I didn't, it's not a radio. It's a, I put a little Bluetooth amp. Gotcha. So I put that up under the dash and wired the speakers I in. I gotcha. So now I just pair my phone to it, and I just use the volume control on my phone to turn it up and down. I saw you drumming on yeah. your steering wheel. Yeah, I was, I was rocking out. <laughs> I think I was listening to some Alice in Chains and something. Anyway, so this is part two of our best four-cylinder engines of all time. Which, we're putting a big asterisk on it because these are your picks for these your are my favorite picks. or most notable. Like, Well, that's why we did the... Because I already talked to people about this, and they're like, what? You didn't put such and such on the list? What, like what? Well, so I did a lot of honorable mentions, and a lot of the honorable mentions, people were saying, well, like, that should have been way above this weird Drake engine. Why? Like what? So I had a friend that was like, sent me a picture of a book. He opened his book about the Volkswagen Type 1 Volkswagen Beetle and all the engineering that went into the flat four that the Germans did and like how there's all these reasons behind they went with air-cooled instead of water-cooled because antifreeze was so hard to get post-war and everything else. And he's like, how could you just put that at the bottom of the list? Because of the engine that we have later, if we're going to be talking about elegant engineering and what it took to build something, I've already picked an engine for that, which is coming up second on this episode. Just to recap, part one. I was trying to be diverse. I was I, trying to no, be diverse. It, I was trying. No one can argue that this isn't interesting. We didn't go with the easy picks. Right. So it, we did the 4G63T, which I think it's hard to argue with. It might be it, in terms of four cylinder engines. It's definitely one of the best. Right. And then this was kind of the obscure one is the Drake 16 valve engine. Right. Which was a Volkswagen based water cooled four cylinder right that drake engineering they had ties in with offenhauser from back yep. in the day the offy big four lots of Indy. history there so that was they really were able to squeak out from an engine that had like that's right less was, than 100 horsepower and then they would put the cylinder head on it bump the compression up and all of a sudden you have 280 who who is gonna think that that's not cool it's still Come a on. two liter right Oh, that would be a two liter. Yeah. So wow. they went up from a, well, they said that they were making 40 horsepower. They had per their, liter. uh, what was it? The, uh, the super V motor that they had was doing 180 at yeah. 1.6 liter. That's nuts. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's nuts. cool. Whoever doesn't think that's cool can suck it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. On that note, be sure to send all your complaints to Chris. <laughs> um, but so here's the thing. I agree that in terms of, 
you could have gone so many different directions with right. this. What I wanted to do is I wanted basically I should have maybe titled this. Hey, these are some cool four cylinder engines, <laughs> but the, the best four cylinder engines of all time has a better ring to it. Yes, it does. So, so this is part two, part two. And so we have two more engines that we're going to highlight here. Right. And we're going to start it off. We'll go right into it. And again, just to remind people, we have we're not experts on these. We don't claim to be. So, right. Chris, you interviewed a couple people who really know these things. Yeah, four people. So this took me a couple weeks to do. I was I meant to have this episode out last week, but uh, but just with the time with the interviews and everything, how it worked out, we had to delay it a little bit. So yeah, I interviewed four people that are industry experts in their field with these engines. Okay, so. Drum roll, please. Do I have a drum roll? You might actually, I, but that's okay. I don't think I do. So I think drum I do. roll, our first Get engine. Get out of my boat. That's, that's not a drum roll. Okay. <laughs> is the venerable Honda B series. Right. And this is always, this is the engine that I would always hear about, like cruising the strip down at university, which is, you know, it's kind of the road where everybody used to go and, you know, go street racing and yeah, stuff like here that. Yeah, in the Twin Cities. Obviously, street racing still exists, but that was kind of the staple engine. Any big honda in the early 2000s late 90s had a b16 in it i remember that is what you had i remember because we hung out at the same lot before we even knew each other the probably Euro lot. yeah and at, i remember was there that, was, it was a, that uh what was the um well there, it was it car quest or something it was yep, like a car exactly quest. with like the a, dry cleaner next door yeah yep yep and, and then we a, went over to kim hoy chore yep and then we we would eat there every once in a while till somebody got a big mouth of steel wool in their spicy chicken <laughs> <laughs> then we didn't eat there anymore. <laughs> but they tore but down Porky's, which was the huge that was like, the icon, the the drive-in icon of Minneapolis. You right. know, you know, back to the fifties. That's where everybody would go. It had yeah. the big sign outside. A lot of well, towns. It was, it was every Friday night during the summer. Yep. Well, most towns have something like this. Sure. Most bigger towns have like the spot where all the hot rods go right okay. so what they did is they tore down porkies built retirement homes for is all that the, what went in I for all so. the people that were going to porkies <laughs> yeah, with their for all hot the people rod. that were taking their 50s <laughs> hot rods couldn't drive them anymore they tore it down built them a retirement oh, home that's ironic but then they of course they and that kind of killed it yeah it you know did. And, and then getting, they put light rail up and down oh the thing. true so it's yeah it's yeah so the strip anyways. died so all the street racer guys with the b16 well, engines they're all going elsewhere now yeah, right? and, and I was all the other say, import stuff. And the whole reason we got on this tangent is because I remember we're in that year a lot, and some guy pulls in with a white Civic hatch with a B series built up, and he has some little video. It was before a GoPro, so I don't even know what he recorded on some little handy cam yep. of him just smoking a built Corvette. Yeah, and I just remember thinking like, what? What is this thing? How is that possible? I don't want to name drop too much because this is a national podcast. But do you remember DC Nate? That name? I remember the name. Name. He had a black Honda Civic, and he would. Uh, drive around and just destroy everyone this is like this is 20 years ago and he had like a 600 horsepower blown i don't remember what the engine was but for the sake of this podcast we'll say it's a b16 because that's more <laughs> it was fun. a honda it was a honda yeah. a little hatchback thing yeah like f just totally stock looking on the outside right and it would just smoke everybody wow anyway so that <laughs> so yeah b series the b series is a really special engine so we called up uh scott zellner from king motorsports um they're the only mugen dealer in the country oh wow and uh which is actually a, a pretty big deal mugen's a pretty serious honda parts distributor parts. right and it makes sense that i mean honda being obviously a japanese brand right that their big tuning house is from japan that's right so they do a ton of honda stuff so i got a hold of scott who's basically about as industry expert as you get on this and we were going to talk to him about the B-Series engine. So here is the interview with Scott from King Motorsports. Mr. Scott Zellner, how's it going, man? Thank you for calling into the podcast. 
Hey, it's going great. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's uh, it's it's our pleasure. I'm just sitting here looking through the uh, the King Motorsports Instagram, looking at all the cool stuff you guys have been doing uh, over there at King Motorsport. Yeah, well, thank you very much. So, uh, what I wanted to talk to you guys about is. Um, the B series engine. And I, whenever I was down kind of cruising the strip with my buddies way back in the day, that was always the talk, right? The talk was always having a B series engine over like the D series engine. And eventually the K series ended up coming along. But, uh, the B series is kind of what everybody used to talk to. What is the B series engine for somebody that may not know? Um, the B series is uh, a double overhead cam four cylinder that Honda produced, well, and the very first one started in 89 uh, and stopped producing uh, 2001. Um, it's kind of the backbone of the Honda performance industry. It's, it, arguably, you could call it the, uh, Chevy, the Chevy small block of uh, the import tuning scene. With less push rods, though, of course. <laughs> push rods, yeah. Nothing <laughs> like that. <laughs> Um, so what kind of makes this uh, the backbone of the performance industry? What is it about this motor that has brought it to that level? Well, the really great thing is is the packaging. You can put it in everything from an 84 CRX all the way up to, oh, geez, uh, all the different Civics through the 90s. It, it just fits a huge amount of different cars that fit a lot of different people's um, budgets. So is it, can you bolt, is it just like we're talking bolting the transmission up from all these different cars, bolting it in and just going, or is, is it that easy? Um, it, it's pretty simple. The, the performance industry that surrounds the B-Series is extremely robust, and there's lots to choose from. So you can get engine mount kits for just about every chassis out there to fit a B-Series and the B-Series transmission into. So how was the B-Series kind of a step up from the D-Series that was also around at that time? Well, the D-Series is a single overhead cam motor, um, 1.6. They were great for fuel economy, and that's about it. I mean, there's there's lots of people who love a D-Series, and and I do too. But the performance capabilities of a D-Series really stopped far, far below what what a B-Series is capable of. Plus, there's some inherent... um, issues with the D-Series when you start making horsepower, you start breaking parts and in the gearboxes as well. That B-Series is just a super robust, more performance-oriented platform to start with. So what do people commonly do to the to the B-Series engines, you know, to start to get a little bit more power? Well, I mean, we, we all start with bolt-on. So you do a header, exhaust, and intake. Um, makes the car sound, sound a lot better, lots more flexibility better throttle response people then go inside the motor and start doing rods pistons increasing compression start working on the cylinder head better intake manifolds and, and really the sky's the limit you know on a on a naturally aspirated b-series build you know we're doing 235 horsepower at the wheels with absolute reliability is that like a VTEC or a non-VTEC engine that, that would be a VTEC. So that would be like a V18 motor uh, with a V16 head, or you could use a GSR head. 
as well. So what, um, what is VTech? Because we always hear it's like, you know, you see the memes out on the Internet. I'm just hit VTech, bro. Like that's always the the meme that's out there. But what is VTech? So VTech is variable valve timing and lift control. That, that's it in a nutshell. And what that means uh, is there's actually two, two camshaft profiles for each, each camshaft. So you've got a low-speed profile and a high-speed profile. So what that enables you to do is have a nice and efficient low-speed profile, which gives you great torque, uh, decent fuel economy, and good emissions. And then when VTEC uh, VTEC crosses over, then you've got a much higher lift camshaft to give you the high 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 RPM performance. So, so you're kind of both best of both worlds. So how did VTEC develop over the years? Because it's gotten a lot better. Um, the basic premise of VTEC is, is still the same now. Honda's added iVTEC, which is um, is uh, variable valve timing along with uh, along with the lift. So it, it gets a little bit more sophisticated, but the, the, the basic premise is still the same. Right. But there's right. a crossover point you, you switch over to the high speed camshaft. So the B18C seems to be kind of the the, the the king motor to not to use that <laughs> the, the king motor to have um i remember <laughs> i remember when i was uh valeting back in the day i i got into an integra type r and it was black and i saw how high the tack went and i admit i may or may not have found out what that thing sounded like at, at when you're when you're really ringing it out what makes the b18c kind of really special amongst all the other b-series engines well, it's it's the factory hot rod motor. It's um, it's got a lot of uh, pretty unique parts, including a, a hand ported cylinder head. Um, From the factory, it's a hand ported cylinder head. You bet. Wow. Yeah, the intake ports are ported, and then there's lots of pictures out there of, of uh, engineers sitting at their at their workstations porting cylinder heads. So, was it something like you would look at the the B18 cylinder head, how it was ported, and then trying to replicate that on other cylinder heads to try and get the most out of what you were up to? Well, it was it was it was still mass produced uh, porting, so you can you can do a whole lot more than what they did. But it was a real big start, and it was a real real cool thing back in the day. How much did uh, Honda leave on the table with that motor? Well, um, with current technology, you know, those motors are capable of doing all kinds of stuff. Our, our boosted motors are making 650 horsepower all day long on a, on a B-series platform. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Um, yeah. So why did uh, Honda eventually move on from the B-Series? Because we all know it's a great engine. What was it lacking that they felt that they needed to develop something else and move on to the K-Series? Well, I think times changed. Um, efficiency, fuel economy, and, and emissions um, regulations kind of hit Honda, and they had to, to rethink the motor. They made it more efficient, better cylinder head, um, got rid of the timing belt. It's a timing chain. Uh, the motor sits on the other side of the car, which would be the passenger side of the car, and the exhaust ports come out the back, the intake manifolds on the front. So there's less parts that you need for a K-series. The, the exhaust manifold is shorter, and they could put the catalytic converter up near the exhaust ports to fire them off more quickly. So it was, it was a motor built for a more modern time, in fact. 
So what? Is, which do you prefer when you're when you're? If someone came to you and said, "Hey, I want to build a motor. I've got whatever money. You know what? What would you tell them to do?" Well, it depends on the chassis of their car. They've got a new chassis, new chassis from 2002 on, where the B series just doesn't work. But if you've got an older car, uh, the B series is still the swap that I prefer because it's it feels like a super exciting motor when you're driving it. Whereas the K series is, is a whole lot smoother, but it lacks that visceral punch that a B series does. What, what, what causes that? Is it kind of the software or? Well, it's just more refined. It's a bigger motor. It makes more torque on the bottom end. Um, so the, the, you know, everyone's always said, well, the under motors are so torqueless, you know, you've got to wind them to make power. That's not, not always true and the, the new K series have got an infinite amount more torque than the older cars did. Right. So what's up with everybody, you know, you, you at least around here in Minneapolis, everybody seems to like I know a guy that's got a, a B16 motor in his car and he like does like this dodge thing where he drives around his neighborhood to make sure no one's following him to his house to to take his engine out. What is with all the engines being stolen out of the Honda cars? Cuz I've never seen that in any other any other mark what what's up with that well you know it's it's very unfortunate and there's a lot of people now that are kind of shying away from the mark because it's it's such a target and you know people sticking their business cards over the VIN numbers and taking their plates off and their steering wheels off so they can drive their car to a restaurant and, and not have to worry about it getting stolen from their garage when they go home I, you know I, I don't know why that is it's it seems strange. I, I guess back in the old days, people used to break into Volkswagens pretty easily because you could. Yep. But no, no one does that anymore. Because <laughs> <They all laughs> nobody them. wants them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but you know, it, it seems that Honda is such a huge target, and I know so many, so many people had Integra Type Rs sold them just because they were just a huge target all the time. I'm sure the insurance rates were high because of all that stuff too insurance rates are, were really high. So a lot of people kind of mothballed them or took them and turned them into to track cars. And, you know, it's kind of neat to see that the value of those cars now is, is starting to soar. So it, it kind of validates what we kind of all knew along how special these cars were. Right. I mean, you see the values of like the, the old type R stuff, SI stuff, all the, if it's, if it's not touched and it hasn't been screwed with, they're like extremely, extremely valuable. Yeah, if you follow Bring a Trailer, uh, you know, there's been several uh, Civic SIs that have been unmolested that have sold for 25000 or more. And I, and I think there's an Integra Type R that sold a Barrett Jackson for 68 plus fees. You know, that's, that's, you know, big car money. Well, it's now, I know that I drew, drove one of those back in the day, and I feel like it's the chance of me driving one again is becomes lower and lower. So what are you guys working on over at King Motorsport that we should know about? Well, we just finished uh, the brand-new Civic Type R Mugen prototype, which we just shipped to the Eibach meet out in California. Now, you guys are the only Mugen dealer in America, right? Yep. We've been uh, the Mugen distributor for North America since 1988. That's that's incredible. Okay, so tell me about this car. Well, it's um, the new Civic, uh, Civic Type R platform, which is called the FK8, is uh, pretty exciting for us. It's a two-liter turbo. Uh, Mugen spent about a year and a half developing parts for them, and they're just starting to come online. Uh, so we actually built a car with many of the prototype parts 
from Japan to, to show to the United States for the very first time. And it's going to be this Saturday. That's awesome. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on your Instagram for that. Where can people find about more about King Motorsport? Where can they find you guys? Well, we've uh, got our, our company's social media pages at kingmotorsports.com and on Instagram and, and uh, Twitter, as well as Facebook. Follow us along. We're very, very active on all social media platforms. Right on, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about the B-Series, which, you know, obviously I, I appreciate being educated on it because I don't honestly before this didn't know anything. So it's it's been great to hear a little bit about what I consider to be uh, one of the best four cylinders of all time. Oh, thank you very much. We, we, we just love the motor and it's, it's, you know, we're building, oh, geez, we probably build 20 or 30 customer B-Series a year still. It's, it's a great, just a great motor. Well, it's good that it's still supported by somebody because, you know, a lot of this stuff as time goes on, it starts to, people don't support the engines anymore. So it's good that the enthusiasts are being supported, not by only by you guys, but the industry as a whole. So that's great. Yep. And the industry is still, it's still developing it, believe it or not. There's all kinds of new stuff out every year. Just when you think, well, that's about it. Someone else <laughs> goes, okay, not, not quite it yet. Right, right on. Well, thanks a lot for calling in, man. I will, uh, I'll talk to you later. Very good. Thanks, Chris. Take care, man. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. That was great. So the B-Series engine is now something that I'm interested in, which what? you may have noticed from we Cars were joking and Coffee earlier because we're today. walking around Cars and Coffee, and all of a sudden we're kind of looking at cars that, I mean, <laughs> you can always appreciate, but we never really would have given them a second look. And well, it's hard because you get so mired in your own opinions, thoughts, and what you're into and the mark that you're into. For me, right. it happens to be you know Porsche and Volkswagen, right? That's right. kind of like my world. But then there's like this Integra that I'm like, that looks, that's a dual over cam. Integra. I wonder if it's yep. a GS. I didn't have a chance to see if it was a GSR or not. It was not a Type R, but maybe it would have been a no, GSR. But it, it had the big fat tires on front, and I was like, that thing looks like it's probably not slow. Yep, had the cold air intake on it. Was not boosted, which is cool because I, right. you know, what those motors with the way that they rev, I don't know that I'd want to boost them. It seems like they would just be fun to just rev the hell out I of. Agree. Although if you're running boost at eight thousand RPMs, probably that's also probably fun. also a good time. <laughs> so I don't want to discount that. Regardless, though, B series definitely up there definitely on the list so moving right along so this is my favorite four-cylinder engine of all time and, and it's the one where when you told me hey we're going to do a big thing on the you know best four cylinders or most interesting four cylinders this is the one that came to mind for me as well okay what's funny is that when i posted up hey guys post your thoughts on the best four-cylinder engines no one no one no one brought this one up so i hope that it's still again kind of obscure a if little you're not bit into this mark you may not know it Okay, so that that's the thing is that even if you're not into this mark, this is an engine that you can you can respect the elegance, you can respect the engineering, you can respect that um, Porsche themselves spent almost their entire budget for the years developing it on this engine. Right. This was a really really big deal, and of course I'm talking about the Furman four cam four cylinder horizontally opposed <laughs> air cooled engine. Right, and this thing it it always kind of mystified me a little bit i think it mystifies everyone which we'll find out so, <laughs> but i didn't understand what made it so different because right. you see this engine you go well that's very similar to just like a standard volkswagen flat four right, right. if you wouldn't if you didn't know you wouldn't know because just looking at it you're like oh yeah there's a fan right there it's just <laughs> there's some carburetors but then right. when you start to look closely i'm like wait there's there's two uh, like uh, downdraft carburetors they look a little bit different the air cleaners are so this engine when you look at it right is, it is actually a beautiful it is engine. a beautiful engine it is the definition of art and a machine right there when right. you look at it you can 
and the shroud engine shroud is like um it, it's kind of curved and it, flows it almost looks well. like it's sculpted right it, well it is and you know they say that it's it's sculpted on the outside to help air get in because air has sure. to flow well in so they took the time to like engineer the aerodynamics of the of the airflow getting through the fan and to cool the engine but there's all kinds of different things about this engine. And well, and it, you know, when I say it, it mystified me is again, I didn't understand what was so complex about this, but then I remember hearing like, Oh, no one can work on these things anymore. No one knows about them. And it takes, you know, like a hundred hours to rebuild one of these. It is. It is legitimately, uh, if there's a quote by Furman where he says, okay. this is a 120 hour rebuild and timing takes anywhere from eight to 15 hours just to time the engine. <laughs> <laughs> to do the timing will take you, you will start, you will start doing the timing, you will work for a while, then you will take a lunch. Yeah. And then you will work some more and then you will go to sleep. Right. And then you will wake up and then you will continue to work for more while you drink coffee. So that's like the, <laughs> I mean, it is a pretty serious. <laughs> is that in the actual manual there? You, you got to take is. coffee. It probably and- is. Although the Germans were probably drinking some beer in, <laughs> in the middle instead. So um, I actually talked to uh, Steve DeYoung from DeYoung Motorsports okay. in uh, Marin County. Um it's Marin, right? Because I was sure. saying Marin and people were giving me a hard time. It's Marin County. He's yep. over there. Um, really nice guy. Uh, definitely knowledgeable uh, on the history and the ins and outs of the 4Cam engine. So I'm going to let him kind of talk about it a little bit. And then after the episode, we're going to start getting into the really technical stuff about what really After makes, the interview. After the interview. Sorry. Yep. After the interview. You're going to read from a passage here from a book. From Excellence Was Expected, which is basically a giant weapon. It is a heavy, heavy book. I thought you were going to, you know, people throw the term around too much, but it's, it's the Porsche Bible. It right? is. It is it, for, yeah, for the older stuff. You know, it, it stopped. And because these I, were built in the 50s, these four cam. Right. Yeah. This was 1950s technology. And one thing I think is, is interesting to remember is like, um, and then I didn't think about this while I was doing the interview was, you know, they designed this engine and spent tons and tons of money on it. I'm like, well, why didn't they just do a six cylinder? Right. Why didn't they just go straight from the, right. the pushrod motor to the... But the thing is, is that we're talking 10, 15 years here of development. Like the 50s and then the 911 came out in 1964. Right. Obviously, they were doing the developing the flat six before that. But this was a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of time in terms of manufacturing, engineering ideas. So they needed to go race now is what they were thinking, I imagine. Like they needed to go to Avis and break speed records and go to Le Mans. Right. And they needed to do well. And it was like the 1.5, 1.6 liter class is what they were competing in at the time. Sure. So they're like, that's what we need to do. So we're going to design this absolutely insane engine. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's talk to Steve and hear what he has to say about the Porsche 4Cam engine. The Young Motorsport. Hey, Steve, it's Chris from the Overcrest Podcast. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, so I'll, I'll get right to it. Um, you know, I called you yesterday to tell you that we're doing a episode on the best four-cylinder engines of all time. And as a Porsche guy myself, I had to include the, the Porsche 4Cam engine, which is also known as the Furman engine. Um, why don't you, can you tell us a little bit about why Porsche designed this engine in the first place? Well, you know, back in that period in the 50s, Porsche was getting involved in racing. You know, they started right at the start. I mean, with the the cars at Le Mans in 50, I think it was. And, you know, they wanted an engine um, from the engineering standpoint that would that would take them to that level because they were very competitive. They wanted to be winners. What was wrong with the pushrod and, engines that they were using at the time? What weren't they doing? Well, basically, it was a Volkswagen motor that was modified to Porsche 
um, some of the specs that Porsche used, but it had its limitations. And the 4CAM motor, um, you know, with the with the development of the engineer, the direction of the engineer and the development and the, and testing and so forth, they felt that they could come up with an engine that was a higher performing engine that would get them or garner them farther up in the finishes. And, um, you know, I'm sure you've done a little bit of studying, but that's, it was a very complex engine. And I don't know history as far as, other cars. I know Porsche, but I know there were other cars. There were motorcycles that had very ingenious sorts of directions they went to try and extract more horsepower. And this right. was just, this was Furman's, that, that was his example. That was his decision, you know, his, his engineering. That's where his mind took him. I mean, you drive a 911, yes? Yeah. Okay, well, we all know the Metzger motor, you know, and right. that derived from a man in his his knowledge, his goal, his vision. And, and the same thing happened with the 4CAM motor. Um, that 4CAM motor, in its day, was a very complex piece. Yeah, I mean, what kind, so just for people that don't know, what type of engine is, the, is this 4CAM engine? Can you describe, like, you know, kind of how it comes together and the way that it works <laughs> without talking for an hour? Because we all know well, it's really Well, you know, it's, it's very, very simply... It's a horizontally opposed four-cylinder engine, right? not unlike a pushrod motor. But instead of using a single camshaft going through the center of the motor, they've got drives that come off a shaft inside the cases that go out the horizontal shafts, and those drive the camshafts, the exhaust camshafts. There's an intermediate shaft between or a vertical shaft that goes up and drives the intake cams. And basically what that allows you is the adjustment of your cam timing. Um, and it gives you a range of adjustment. Um, and in doing that, um, you know, they were able to develop an engine that they could do higher revs out of. Um, they could tune it accordingly to get the horsepower they want at the RPMs that they were working at. Um, a very high strung animal is what it was. Right. It's, I've heard it's an engine it's that also, you don't want to lug along. You want to make sure that you keep it going. Well, you know, there's, there's, that's some knowledge that some people have been possibly fed. Basically the early cars had roller bearing, bearing crankshafts. And unlike a, a plane bearing crankshaft, it doesn't mind um, the RPMs when it's cold, the low RPMs, but a roller bearing, you've got many rollers in place of a bearing shell. And those rollers, if they're just sliding over the surface of the crankshaft, then those rollers will become flattened. If those rollers are allowed to roll as they are supposed to, that's good for them. That helps the longevity. But that was one of the areas of the engine that, that could cause problems. So there were, there were procedures for warming the car up. And, and that's where the, the thing that people hear about not lugging the cars. Also, people used to hear that, you know, well, you got to have the cooling. And I think that came from Volkswagens too, as well as Porsches and even pushrod cars that you don't lug them because then you are producing more heat and the fan speed is slower. So you're not 
generating the cooling that you need. So that's kind of where that comes sure, from. But sure. again, the roller bearing cranks were, were kind of finicky. And those were the things that, you know, there were, there were times that those would fail. And unfortunately, back in that era, you know, there were some people that knew about the four cab motors. There were a lot of people that worked in the Porsche world that didn't. And a lot of those motors got taken out and set aside. Just and because they, they, were, those... they were just prohibitive to do anything with. Because, you know, when I, I think it was, Furman says, um, these first four cam engines took a skilled man 120 hours to assemble, and the timing alone could take eight hours, sometimes 15, if the tolerances weren't just right. And then people just were like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pay for that. And then they would just swap the engine out or what? Correct. Correct. Because you could buy a pushrod motor and it would bolt into the same place. Do a little bit of changes of your wiring and a little bit of your oiling system, and you could be off and running at a, at a much lesser dollar amount. And again, they were they were kind of a high strung motor. You know, they were their intent was to be run as a competition high performance engine. So right. you know, around town, they, they, you know, when I find street four cam cars, you know, it's just interesting. It's interesting to hear the history. I mean, I had. I've seen them come from all kinds of different places and, you know, just the the history of what happened to the motors and how they were used and how that was kind of tough on the engines. And, you know, everybody wants to do the, the barn find or the garage find of a four cam that got pulled out because the guy got disgusted or, you know, and, and, and changed the car out to a push rod engine. And, you know, that engine has been sitting since the fifties. I mean, right. those kind of stories, um, you know, it's, uh, and part of what's happened today, it's just like anything. I mean, you know, a four cam engine or a spider or a, a GS Carrera A coupe or a, even a GT car, you know, they happened back then, but they weren't, they didn't have the, the aura. They didn't have the, the desirability they do today. And with people and economics and, you know, the wealth of certain people that have knowledge about those cars, you know, they're willing to pay. It's kind of like, you know, the, you know, a house in wherever you grew up, I'm sure there's an area where there were some houses that were nice when you were young, right? but they were kind of the fancy, you know, they were fancy, but you know, no big deal. But today, maybe those houses are really high priced because, you know, the children that grew up in those homes are off making really good money and they've come back to your town and they want to live in that place that they remembered. And it's kind of a nice area and it's getting built up. It's kind of like a rundown area of town that gets built up and, right. and the prices start ticking up. Well, they did that with a, with the four cam cars. They did it with the four cam motors, you know? Right. Right. Um, there's that aura today. And, you know, a lot of the people that have these four cam cars are, you know, they're collectors. They're, they're not they're not enthusiasts that are out there wringing them out. And, I mean, uh, obviously, you've dr- you've driven them and you've wrung them out. What is it? What do they feel like to drive? Well, have you ever driven a Volkswagen? <laughs> I honestly, I've driven a, an old Beetle. That's about that's about the extent they're, of it. They're for me. good enough. Okay, you've driven an old Volkswagen. What do you have? You have a what year nine eleven? You got? I have a seventy two nine eleven that I built a okay, three point so two now, short stroke in. What, yeah, what, what's the difference between the bug and the and the nine eleven? Well, it's obviously the it's a lot faster. There's a lot more power. You know, that's that's the first thing that'll come to mind. And the, obviously, the brakes and suspension are are better. But there's well, a lot I'm of talking stuff about that, the motor specifically, though. Oh really, yeah, you've got just, more displacement, more more cylinders. 
Well, it, it, your, your question to me about the difference between a, or what a four cam feels like, it's, you know, a, a lot of us that work in the world of the Porsches, you know, we've, we've worked on many push rod motors and to a lesser degree, four cam motors. And a four cam motor is just that, that you say you've got a, sh- a short stroke three, two. Well, if you had spent any time with that three liter before it was made into a short stroke three, two, it had a certain power and you do a short stroke three, two. And if you, you know, put some nice induction and nice exhaust on there, you know, it just lightens the car up. Sure. Um, the difference between a push rod Porsche and a four cam is, is kind of in that, in that view of it's just, it's, it's a different performance. It, it's got a sweetness to the way it revs depending on the camshafts because the camshafts are what really dictate the RPMs that the car has its power. Right. Um, you know, depending on the camshafts, it's just when it gets up to those ranges, you kind of go, wow, this is so nice. The first time you drive a four cam compared to a push rod car, if you are familiar with push rod cars, that's the difference. Um, there's something that we learn and we all learn things just through experience, through life. Well, some people learn those sounds of a four cam and, and it becomes a sweet sound to you. Just like your three, two has a sweet sound to it. You know, that sound you've lived with that sound. You've lived with it when it hasn't sounded quite right. And you live with it when it <laughs> sounded right. And yeah. you go, ah, well that happens to me when I hear a four cam come down the road, it's just like, ah, <laughs> and when you're behind the wheel driving a four cam, again, we're, all very experienced with push rods and to a lesser degree four cam. So you hop on a four cam and you drive and it's kind of like, ah, oh, this is neat. Um, one time I had to deliver a customer's four cam, a Speedster GT down to uh, the county right below us. So just on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge. And, you know, I drove that car and it was pretty high strung. But when you got it up to six, 6,500 on up RPM range, and again, I'm just driving on the freeway, but it was just, it was magical around town and taking off from a stoplight. It was, you know, it was a little, it was, it was a test. Why do you think Porsche went from something so simple like that push rod engine to doing something with, with this four cam? Because obviously eventually they just went to doing, you know, the flat six engines for, for more power and everything. Why did this four cam exist kind of in the middle of that? Because it is, it's so complicated and it costs them so much money to develop. I mean, it's the most expensive thing that they were doing at the time. Like, why did they do it? Why didn't they just go straight to the six? Well, because they weren't there yet in their imagination. They hadn't gotten to that point in their minds that they needed to. And, you know, Furman came up with this idea and they said, well, let's see where it goes. And, you know, if you stop and look at it, I mean, they made the four cam motor through the C cars. There's not very many C cars and they really, it was not, you know, a factory in, in the street car. Well, I see the four cams in, in, in the sixties in the mid sixties, um, you know, the, the, the last guys to go out with the, with that motor with the nine Oh fours. So it was used as a competition, but if you stop and look at the whole timeline, it's a, it's a fairly short motor that it was, right. it was around. Um, you know, in answer to your question about why, why the four cam, why didn't they go to something else? You know, they went back or not back, but they, they were also using push rod motors at that time. I mean, they came out with a super 90 and said, you know, it has close to the horsepower of the, 
lower end of the of the four cam motors. It's a less expensive motor. It's an easier motor to maintain. You know, so so it was a it was a period in time where they had an engineer that directed them in this direction of the four cams, and they went with it for a while, and they did very well during that time of racing. If you look at the the histories, I mean, here in America, well did well in Europe with the four cam cars. Right. Um, right. So why do you, you think that it, over the years that it's become something that most people won't work on? Like my, I have a friend here in the Twin Cities, uh, Aaron from Flat Six, and he he wouldn't he doesn't want to touch four cams. Nobody really wants to touch and build the four cam engine. Is it just because of the complication, or is it because of the reper- repercussions of not doing something right, or what is it about this engine that's given it such a such an enigma for engine builders? Well, you know, again, it's the complexity, and if you don't have familiarity with doing it, um, it, it's an unknown. And then you add into that the value of what a core motor or a rebuilt four cam motor is. And if there were any issues that came up, it could be very, very, very expensive. And then you come to the part of okay, parts. Where do you get parts? Right. You know, um, I had a four cam, a two liter four cam here that had a broken V drive housing on it where the two distributors sit. Um, and at that time I called Bill Doyle up and said, Bill, can you get me one? He says, Nope. (laughs) And that was probably 15 plus years ago. And today it's even different. And you have to be somewhat plugged into the four cam world to even kind of get an opportunity. If there's something available to maybe be able to buy it. Um, so, you know, in the, the Bill Doyles and other people, there are some parts that, you know, they would fabricate. There are some parts that they would, you know, have to massage out of a piece that in the old days we used to throw away. They'd have to work with that piece and try and make it serviceable again. So that deters a lot of people. Right. You know, it, it, the complexity and the non-knowledge, the value, and then the availability I imagine there's a lot of specialty tools that are probably hard to get a hold of, too, for doing this stuff. You know, it it really, there are, and I mean, I think about the tools. You know, that brings to mind a good thing about, say, the roller-bearing cranks. There weren't a lot of people, you know, around that there aren't that can do those cranks. And, you know, Bill had that sort of stuff. Um well, just so, you know, so people know, when you talk about the crank, it's it's like a it's like a ten piece crank with four of those pieces being the rod bearing shoulders, and it's held together with like these hollow bolts. I mean, it's a complicated crank. Before you even start building the engine, you have to put the crankshaft together. That's crazy. Well, it's what it was at the time. That's right. how you get a roller bearing rod onto a crankshaft because it doesn't have a bearing cap that you unbolt. Yet put it on the journal and then put the crank together. <laughs> you know, it's just really it, it was it was a technology that was interesting and today on today's standards it still mystifies very many people. Back then it, it that, mystified a lot of people. That's what I think is one of the most amazing things about this engine is that its engineering has stood the test of time as be as being considered complicated and over engineered and and beautifully engineered like if you look at most of the engines that came that have come over the last like 30 years there's not a lot of there i I should say there are a lot of interesting things but a lot of manufacturers aren't really pushing the envelope in in, in the same way that porsche did with this with the with the four cam engine i would even say that um porsche hasn't even really push the envelope like that going from the push rod engine to the four cam like that leap 
is enormous. And I just haven't seen that from, from most manufacturers. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so special. Well, that's a part, but you know, another leap was, you know, with the nine eleven motor. I mean, that was another pretty good leap. Right. And it went through its development period from the first six owner motors. Um, you know, you, you look at the, I mean, there was some pretty interesting stuff done with the 906 back then. And then after the 906, I mean, there was interesting stuff done with a prototype uh, experimental um, 911R motor. And, you know, I mean, there there have been some complexities that happened. Um, and Porsche, again, they're, they're an engineering firm and, you know, look at their history and what they've done. Right. Um, you know, the, the Porsche family, I mean, look at the, some of the early on cars that, that Porsche produced, look at the electric car at the beginning. I mean, just that's who they are. It's very unique as a manufacturer is what they've it's done. Wonderful. It's wonderful that there is that imagination and, and direction that they have. That's, that's what keeps us Porsche enthusiasts, you know, from the mechanical standpoint, keeps us just intrigued and, and, and always looking to see what's going on. And it's happened since early on, and it continues to happen. I mean, in its own way. I mean, look at a brand new 911. Right. I mean, what what they're doing with it, what they're extracting from it, and what they're doing with the size and what they're doing with the design. I mean, they're still doing that. And who knows? <laughs> you know, in 50 years, are they going to get all sideways and excited about a 2020 or 2019 911. I don't know. Maybe they will. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I hope. Uh, I hope we're still driving cars at that time. That would be. That would be great if we were able to do that. Gosh, um, if we aren't driving cars, what's going to happen to the value of all of these cars? That's one thing I think about. I do like, too. You know, I do these too. People that lust after, you know, certain automobiles and. Well, if there's no more fuel and you can't drive them, how many people are going to want to sit in their front driveway, you know, looking at their fountain and looking at their row of Porsches sitting there that they can't drive? I mean, that's making four cam noises as they sit in their car. Horribly, <laughs> yeah, it's horribly boring to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically going to become, I think there'll always be people that drive. I don't know if people are going to be, you know, you can make ethanol. You can make it if you want. You know, you can figure out ways to do it. I think it could be end up becoming a rebel culture, but I think that's that's a topic for a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I listen. My son works in the automotive world, and and and, and um, he talks about the the length of time we have for for petroleum and uh, dyno fuel. <laughs> yep. um, and and we've got an a number of more decades to go before it's all gone. So, and well, let's appreciate the, I honestly think right now is the best time in history to be a car enthusiast with all the things you can buy. Everything's generally, unless you own a four cam, everything's pretty available. You know, you can go anywhere you want on good tires, good brakes. The roads are way better than they used to be. I think that right now is, is a pretty, pretty good time in automotive culture. Well, we're lucky where it is today. I yes. mean, I feel lucky, fortunate because it's it's you know these cars are my passion. They're 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 my interest, um, as well as being my my profession. But you know, my best times were when I hop behind the wheel and go out and use them. And you know, I had those in the '60s driving. I had those in the '70s. I had them in the '80s and on up till now. Right. It's you know. W- w- 
our hard drive gets filled up with more and more and more stuff as the decades go by and yours will too. For sure. And, and you know, they all have some magic and some charm. I mean, I, I can remember the first four cam car I looked at and it, I was inspecting it for somebody and this was probably in the late sixties or early seventies. And unfortunately at the time it had a push rod motor, but uh, you know, that's, that was a magical time. Right. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I was over with an RS 60 a couple months ago and the gentleman's house that it was at, he's got a big garage and it was, they were doing some work on it. And he had to go somewhere and he says, well, I got to go. And I said, well, good go. I'll lock up when I'm done. And I spent, I don't know, half an hour, <laughs> 45 minutes just sitting there with that car and just looking at it and just imagining it was a factory works RS 60 it was 60 or 61, um, a factory works one of which there were four of this particular car. And it's the only one the factory sold. And I'm sitting in a room with this car in a shop. And it was just, uh, I'm a lucky soul. Yes. I'm I, a lucky I, soul that I got to do it. And all the times in between that I've gotten involved with, with four cam cars, um, it's just been, it's been magical. Well, I really appreciate your time. I, I think that'll I think that covers the four cam engine pretty well. It sounds like we should have you on the podcast again. I really, really enjoyed talking with you and I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us. When you talk to somebody about their passion, you can probably get some pretty good stuff and we remove ourselves from the 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 talk, the discussion. Yeah. We talk about the subject. And and the subject is is this subject is important to me. And and I love people that want to learn about the subject. Because not everybody's going to get to do hands-on stuff. So right. I like people to be able to learn the real stuff about the subject and disregard the the, the deliverer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I can I can appreciate that. And that's, you know, I, I just for example, I have my, uh, the nice thing about Porsche is there's always something to learn, you know, whether it's talking to you or reading books or whatever like that. I, I try to absorb and learn as much as I can. And you know, get that information in my head as, as much as I can. Cause I, I too am passionate about it. And, and I, and I appreciate you sharing what you, what you have today. Yeah. Well, you're very welcome. All right. Take care of yourself. I appreciate it. You do the same. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. There you go, Jake, the Porsche four cam engine. It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. It's a, it's an impressive engine. And you know, one thing that I really think about when I talk to Steve and listen to Steve is, is hearing about the cars and the, basically the art of right. that car. Right. How Steve was talking about just sitting there looking at that car. There's, there's almost nothing else. I mean, you can go to an art museum, you can look at art on the wall, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't have a function other than having you be able to look at it. Right. So that is art simply for the sake of art. Right. Well, the art, you know, there's you, you have art and political movements and religious movements. So art is is like used as a tool for Correct. whether it's religion or it's propaganda or it's meant to move you in a certain way or identify a certain period of time and and allow an emotion or I'm not this belittling art, but I want to say you wouldn't call a painting anything other than art, right? right? That's it's, all it is. It's not when you look at a car and when Steve was sitting there looking at that car, he was appreciating not only the the art of the car and the shape of the car, but the fact that it was built to 
do something. It's built to accomplish a task. It is a machine. Right. Right. So when you when you drive a car, it, it's it has it can take you somewhere. Right. It can transport you to another place. Now, obviously, someone would be like, <laughs> well, sure. Uh, uh, my imagination goes to another place when I see that painting. But come on, let's but good luck driving your Picasso down the street. Yeah, exactly. Well, you could sell it and buy a hell of a lot of 9-11s, <laughs> I, I imagine. Um, so let's I'm going to page through the book here. You t- you talk for a minute while I find where. Okay. So where this, as we mentioned, Porsche uh, Excellence Was Expected is the book here. And I should take a picture of Chris because. It, he's struggling here to keep this. Well, I'm trying to keep it off of the him. keyboard so I don't <laughs> accidentally ruin what's going on here. Um, and my arm will be shaking by the time I'm done reading all this. So we're going to talk a little bit about the technical aspects of the motor. Right. And you just stop me when you lose it. When you're just like, I don't understand anymore. You just, okay. let, you just let me know. Um, so th- this is basically to describe how the engine operates, Excellent. the mechanicals of it. The drive to the cams was taken from a gear at the flywheel or output end of the crankshaft, which is considered by many designers to be a more stable takeoff point than the more often used nose of the crank. There, a pair of helical gears drove a half-speed shaft in the sump directly below the crankshaft. At the other end of the crank, below the engine's center main bearing, the half-speed shaft, called the countershaft by Porsche, carried back-to-back spiral bevel gears. These in turn rotated smaller gears on hollow shafts, which extended straight out to the left and right. At its respective side of the engine, each shaft turned a gear at the center of the lower exhaust camshaft. From that point, another shaft rose vertically to turn spiral bevel gears at the center of the inlet camshaft. Okay. So what are you picking up here? So, okay, you got, of course, your crankshaft, and then there is a basically, we would call an intermediate shaft at this point. And from there, what's different about this, rather than belts or chains or anything else driving the overhead camshafts on this engine, you have rods or shafts coming out horizontally out towards each bank of heads. Right. And so from there then, again, another little shaft that goes up to the intake camshafts, which of course run the length of the engine. All right, so we still have Jake. We just still have me, but I mean, I've <laughs> looked at these engines before, so right. it, it's amazing. So the spiral bevel gears were so sized that the four shafts into and inside of the heads spun at crankshaft speed, though the cams themselves turned at half that speed. Right. By doubling the speed, the shafts were made to transmit the same power with half the torque. The value that determines how thick and heavy the shafts must be. So that is amazing. Usually, once you take it off of the crankshaft, it's all run at half speed, right? right? Because that's what your valve train needs to actually go at so you're not doing every single rotation of the piston. Right. That makes sense. But what they did is they then doubled it on the output shafts to the horizontal, out to the heads, because it, it this makes sense. By spinning it faster, you need less bulky of a shaft, right? You're basically well, having more weight. speed. Think of all like a belt obviously is going to be a lot lighter than a bunch of shafts. So they were fighting weight inside this engine at all times. Right. Right. Um, the shafts, which were hollow and remarkably thin, all ran in lubricated bushings instead of on a ball or roller bearing, which were heavier and more costly. Wow. The oil reached each cylinder head through the hollow center of the drive shaft to that head. So these tubes not only drive the heads, but their oil passages. Oh, yeah. Wow. If you think about it. Once in the head, the oil was carried to the bushings and the cam lobes by drillings and by the hollow core of each camshaft. Further, the cam lobes themselves were not integral to the camshaft. It's important. They were made separately and keyed to the shaft that carried them. 
This method, which resembled that of a motorcycle engine design, made it easier to choose the right cam profile as well as the best material for the lobe surface. So if you're at Le Mans, you run this cam profile and then you could switch out because it's they're not like it's not like now where you can just call up Drake and have them like grind, grind a, a new shaft. camp for you. Right. So this, this is this is so ridiculous because not only is the crankshaft what 10 pieces they said, yeah, it's, it's not a single forged crankshaft like you'd think of. Right. So not only is the crankshaft multiple pieces, each camshaft is also multiple pieces. So right. each shaft, lobe is unique. Yeah, and so the shaft it probably has to do with metallurgy as well. I'm you sure. can make the shaft lighter and then the cam surface which actually, you know, the low wear surface has yeah. to be harder. So they probably used a better, you know, harder metal on it. I wonder that. if the cams were hollow. I think it said they were hollow because yeah. those are also oil passages. Well, I'm sure they were. Anyway, um I've had hollow cams on Volkswagen water-cooled engines. I don't think it's right. that uncommon. No. Like the roller cranks for the pushrod engines, the crankshaft for the 4-cam engine was completely assembled by Hearth for Porsche. Now, Hearth made the roller bearings, so they did the the other air-cooled stuff, too. Okay. Like, so so they, they are basically a bearing manufacturer. Right. This book is really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it was made up, the crank was made up of 10 pieces. Right. Four of them being rod-bearing journals held together, held together by five finely threaded hollow bolts. All parts were... <laughs> <laughs> Why are the bolts hollow? Wait, man. That's nuts. It's in the crank. It's weight. Yeah. All parts were machined and made to such standards of precision that they could be used interchangeably in a crank assembly with no need to machine or finish grind the complete article. Now, you know, when we take our crankshafts apart for most motors, everything has to go back in the exact same place that it came out of or the crank will bind up. Well, not only that, it's not balanced either. That's right. why when you talk about, you know, these big V8 guys, oh, the, the, it's all blueprinted. Right. That basically means they take the entire rotating assembly with the pistons and everything else, and you balance it out. Right. With this thing, you, you don't, don't have, have to, to do, do that. that. You don't have it's to do that. It's so well machined. Yeah, imagine they probably hired a guy just for his micrometer skills. <laughs> this is the best guy in Germany yeah, with a micrometer. Yeah, can get down to the 10,000th yeah. every time. The serrated hearth joint was also chosen as it had been for the Sistalia GP engine, which was a flat 12 engine that Furman designed. Okay. So he designed, it was for a Grand Prix car or whatever. There was so a that's where 12. a lot of his inspiration came from. where a lot of this from. came from. Well, he designed it for that as well. Um, the serrated hearth joint was also chosen to attach to the flywheel to the, uh, to attach the flywheel to the crankshaft. A shoulder on the flywheel hub rested mm -hmm. on a small ball bearing, which accepted the clutch disengaging thrust and which also acted as an outrigger bearing between the flywheel and the helical pinion that turned the cam drive counter shaft. That I don't understand. I'm gone. I'm gone. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't Some really... other external bearing or something on the flywheel. Well, I know that it's like a conical thing where it bolts on, but that's, I mean, I don't really okay. know so hopefully someone i'm assuming we've got some people smarter than us in our audience sure able to well there you this. go i hope you enjoyed that <laughs> <laughs> each throw of the crankshaft was as heavily counterweighted as the limited space between the opposed cylinders would permit because it's a small engine right you know so there's not and these things were way over square like 80 right. 80 so something to 60 something your stroke is much shorter than the actual diameter of the piston were, i mean it's 85 or 86 millimeter pistons and a 60 something stroke yeah. so they're way over square right which is why they love to be wrapped i imagine yep um since the space was not quite adequate cylindrical slugs of heavier metal were inserted into the cheeks of the four counterweights lubricant sa30 oil was pumped to the so is this a different lubricant than the engine oil no. Or, or do they just use 30-weight oil on these things? I guess they just use 30-weight. They're specifying lubricant, SAA 30 oil, was pumped. Why don't they just say oil was pumped? Uh, Why are they specifying? I don't know, Chris. 
This oil was pumped to three main bearings through brass metering jets. As the oil escaped, it was centrifuged outward to be caught by slinger rings, from which it was carried by passages to the connecting rod journals. The oil was delivered to the various galleys by the pressure section of a two-sided oil pump, which was driven by a gear at the tip of the half-speed countershaft. Mm-hmm. It was housed together with a scavenging pump of more than twice the capacity in a cylindrical casting, which was fitted into a machine matching cavity formed by the two halves of the crankcase. And this is something that you would see kind of graduated to the 911 engines where the oil pump is, you know, housed inside the split crankcase. Sure. Because this is also a dry sump engine, correct? Correct. correct. Okay. Um, it was housed, blah, 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 in a cylindrical casting, blah, blah, blah. This was, again, an ingenious design detail transferred directly by Furman from the engine of the GP car built for Sestalia. That 12-cylinder. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, there's, this goes on and on. Yeah. Right? That's You're, already getting uh, a little, okay. <laughs> he just dropped it on the floor. <laughs> so Hefty. that's the that's the four cam engine. Um, really, really a special engine. Really, the thing is, is it's if you haven't seen designed. one of these, you, you really should look up. A yeah, photo just kind of look and, up the pictures and how they, they have them where the parts are all laid out, stuff like that. I think Porsche is starting to make parts for them again, which is cool. Um, but everybody's always talking about their engines. Like, yeah, my engine runs like a Swiss watch, right? <laughs> when this you, thing is probably machined to closer tolerances and more complex than an actual Swiss watch. It probably is. It probably is. You know, it's it's sad that there's there's not more of them out there. You know, everybody just. Who would pay for a 120-hour rebuild in 1959? Yeah, and it's like Steve was saying, a lot of these people, you know, the engine would blow up in their car, and okay, well, they'll just crate it out to the barn and leave it there. Imagine being like driving in in your 4Cam that needs a rebuild, Yeah, and you're like, man, this thing's great, and then you leave with like some 1,500cc Beetle motor, and you drive away, and you're like... That's what would have happened. You're like, oh. And then uh, you sell the car. And then (laughs) you sell the car. Forget about the engine, wherever that went. And then buy a, what would you buy instead at the time? And what would you get? Do you think, do you think, what about a Jaguar? Yeah. Maybe you'd get type is right around there. I think the six cylinder Jaguar, maybe, or, you know, as the sixties went on, you, then maybe you knew the nine 11 was coming, you know, 19, it was at the the Paris auto show. Maybe you were waiting for the six cylinder in that. If you were a big, like, you know, fanboy for the brand and you were sitting there waiting but yeah. otherwise yeah i imagine you'd buy well the cost else. of the rebuild was your down payment on a new car <laughs> good point <laughs> so you're ready you're already ready to get out of there anyway i hope you guys enjoyed um some chat on the best four-cylinder engines of all time we'll probably do it again with some six-cylinder and right. eight-cylinder I, stuff. we're basically setting the gauntlet here we can do five cylinders right. six cylinders i joked to you chris that well we'd have to skip seven because that doesn't exist it does but it does it does someone we found someone's, someone's, yeah, someone's someone sent, sent us yeah a message about some crazy uses of an inline seven diesel engine. Yeah. So we we'll, might have to at least mention that. We'll do an episode of the best seven cylinder engines of all time. It'll, It'll be, be a like bonus, a five minute bonus episode. <laughs> I like it. That we'll, that we'll release. So this one's probably going to come out Monday. Or sure. maybe I'll release it when we're done here. I don't, I don't know. Who cares? But uh, we'll get it out to you guys and make sure that you have it. And I hope you enjoyed it. We'll do it again. Um, Let us know what we missed. Yeah, for sure. Let us know. We always like hearing that stuff. Having you guys interact with us is one of my favorite parts of doing this. Yeah, it really is. And uh, make sure you follow Jake and I on Instagram as we fly across the country. Um, I leave Monday, Jake leaves Wednesday. And uh, participate with us. You know, hang out with us and send us messages. What you want to see and what we're doing. And we'd love to have you be part of the journey. Absolutely. All right, take care, guys. Bye-bye.